Hello and welcome to EMS Research with Professor Bram, where we talk about the research-related issues to those who work in emergency medical services. Today, we'll be talking about the use of ultrasound in the field by EMS. Welcome to the EMS Research Vlog and Podcast from the studio here in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Bram Duffy. I'm a full-time paramedic on the street, like many of you. I also have an appointment as a research fellow with the Institute for Social Innovation at Fielding Graduate University, and I'm an assistant professor of communication at Kennesaw State University. I actually have a research study open now for first responders, so if you don't mind being interviewed by me, then go to my website and check it out, www.professorbram.com. It's professorbram.com. You just click on the current research tab to apply. The other thing to share before we get started, I have written two different books on communication. And the most recent book was just released called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can find a link to the book below. Also, for sure, hang out to the end and I'll tell you more about it. So for today's show, I would like to introduce Dr. Gordon Johnson. Dr. Johnson is a hospitalist at the Legacy Emanuel Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. He's also a co-author of a research study that was published in um, the POTUS journal called Demonstration of a Longitudinal Medical Education Model to Teach Point-of-Care Ultrasound in Research-Limited Settings. This research article is about a study done to see if long-term teaching program could help doctors in places that don't have a lot of resources. So like in rural Haiti, they were able to use the special tool called this point-of-care ultrasound. And so it's ultrasound at the site and not read later. This tool can be, if it could be used right at the patient's bedside, then we're able to help out with uh, diagnosis is significantly. So the researchers train the doctors by having volunteers from the U.S. and Europe teach them on one-on-one over four months, and then they tested the doctor's skills before and after the program to see if they improved. The results were really, really good. They got better in almost all the important areas that they were tested in. And so this um, study that, that uh, Dr. Johnson put out there really shows that this kind of long-term teaching program works well in places that don't have a lot of resources. And it can help people when we're trying to figure out things about serious diseases or death that uh, can result without figuring out what's wrong with these folks. And so it also just doesn't uh, cost the patient anything extra or put them at any more risk. And so this was really awesome to uh, be able to check out about uh, about this from Dr. Johnson, and he's on the show with us today. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. I know you have a lot more to share. Can you start out, just tell us about yourself and maybe uh, add to this research article? Sure. Uh, just briefly, I, so I'm an internist, but I work mainly as a hospitalist now, but I've done a lot of work. My passion is really global health, and uh, I went through a fellowship in point-of-care ultrasound back in 2000. 15, 16, to really formalize my skills to do this, and have had wonderful opportunities, including working with these two wonderful professors we'll talk to a little bit later from Norway. But around this study, and we'll talk a lot how this would pertain to EMTs, of course, but we'll start out with the study. So what we were trying to show was um, the benefit of a long-term uh, 
teaching program in an area because typically I think in the past what we would do a group of us maybe would fly into Houston, Texas and teach some of your EMTs over a week and then fly out. And what we found was people would really get some great skills to do point of care ultrasound, but then they would kind of degrade over time. So the idea here was for a couple of us to fly in at a time, do some teaching, come out, have another group come in a couple of weeks later, and then over four months have this sustained program and hoping that there's um, you know better education skill over that time in a resource limited setting like Haiti. But I always remind people we have many resource limited settings throughout the world, rural areas, even places on the weekend where you may not have people skilled like Victoria here, who's a ultrasonographer, and it's up to maybe an EMT or an internist like myself to do an initial scan and point of care uh, to come to the diagnosis. So can I just ask you, why is it so difficult? I know there are lots of skills out there like, you know, if you don't practice IVs enough, you're not going to be great at, the, at sticking. But um, why do you think this is a skill that requires um, multiple learning interventions to make to make sure? Yeah, that's a good question. But I mean, if you look at, and we are not ultrasonographers, cardiologists, echo techs, but you know, those skills are at least two-year degrees to get mm -hmm. the skill to be able to obtain these images. And then we have to obtain images and interpret them. Mm -hmm. But I do look at it differently, Brom. Like, let's, you just put up IVs. I mean, we can teach a nurse in, I don't know, half an hour, an hour to help use an ultrasound and get them started, aiding them doing difficult IVs. So I'm thinking point-of-care ultrasound and more of a step-line approach. Um and then, you know, the point where I can like do a cardiac echo and interpret it in a basic sense. Again, we're not cardiologists and I want to be clear about that. You know, that might take me going to a two or three day course, even just to get the basics. So there, there's really like a lot of things, a, a, a wide variety of the skills. And um, I, I guess the best one to start out with would be bladder rather than putting an IV because that's a little trickier with an ultrasound. But, you know, you're an EMT, you go out to a home, somebody can't urinate, teach you to look at the bladder, see if it's a thousand milliliters or 10, you know, that we can do in a, in a half an hour. Um, so it, it's really variable what you're trying to do and what you're trying to look at. That's pretty awesome. I didn't, you know, I was thinking about other uses. I didn't think about it being a bladder scanner also. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, you know, you also invited other two other guests today to talk about this yeah. the application of ultrasound. Do you want to uh, go ahead and help us uh, introduce them to our audience? Yeah, I'll, just briefly, I want to just be clear that point of care ultrasound, the thing that's unique about it is ultrasound at the bedside or in the field. And how are we different from an echo or a ultrasound that's done in a formal setting in a radiologic center? We usually have a binary question. Like I said, is this bladder retaining a bunch of urine or is it not? Um, we're not like looking at the bladder, looking for tumors when we're out in the field. And that's how we're really different. And then the difference also is the person that's doing the scan is also interpreting it. I'm not sending it to a radiologist or a cardiologist to interpret. So that's what I want your audience just to be clear about uh, the, the difference here. Um, so yeah, for, to start, Victoria Vonsbog, she is an ultrasonographer um, from Norway, Stavanger, Norway, trained in uh, the UK, in uh, Ireland, I believe, and very active with ultrasound education uh, with all of us, and then also getting her PhD now from the University of Stavanger. And then her associate, Dr. Niels 
Niels Petter Overland, sorry, he is an MD PhD. Uh, he's an anesthesiologist, who spends a lot of time in the air ambulance there. So I think he'll be have a lot of good information for your uh, audience here and very active in research as well in Stavanger. So go ahead, Victoria. Why don't you tell us a little more about yourself there? Hi, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, uh, thanks for the introduction there, Gordy. Uh, my name is Victoria. I work uh, here in Stavanger on the southwest coast of Norway. Uh, so I have a background as a radiographer and then uh, did my master's in ultrasound. So I've been working on as a sonographer for many, many years. Uh, and like uh, Gordon here said, I am also involved in a lot of teaching, uh, both here at the University of Stavanger, but also other universities around Norway and, uh, and courses and conferences around uh, Norway and in, in Europe as well. Uh, I'm also a PhD student here at the University of Stavanger, where I focus on uh, teleguided ultrasound, so remote ultrasound. Yeah, that was a short uh, intro for me. Awesome. Welcome. I, I think in particular, I know you do some teaching out on the oil platforms where there can be, you know, pretty bad accidents that need attention very quickly. Can you tell us about your research out there? I think that's very interesting to start. So. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, So one of my projects involves um, specialist nurses who work offshore. So off the coast here of Norway, we have a lot of oil rigs. Uh, they don't have any doctors out there. Uh, they have specialist nurses who, who work at the offshore health clinics. And uh, up until... Now they haven't had any access to medical imaging out there. It'd be a bit difficult to fly out a CT machine or an X-ray machine. Uh, so we're trying to introduce ultrasound as a standard um, test that they can do out there. And like Burton said in his introduction, it takes a lot of time and a lot of practice to uh, obtain the skills where you can actually you can scan, but you can also interpret what you see on the ultrasound scan. So in my project, I act as a remote specialist. So the nurses are trained to do the scan, but I am the one actually observing the scan in real time while they're doing the scan and, and interpreting um, and what they see. And like you said, it's, it is uh, not often uh, that quick to get a patient from an offshore oil rig uh, on shore, um, it can take a few hours, and sometimes if the weather is really bad, you can't really fly at all. So it's a great, great help uh, for and a great assurance for for the patients uh, out there. No, to me, thanks, uh, Bram, for having me on the show. Uh, I just realized that um, Houston, Texas, is a friendship city to Stavanger. Actually, it's one of our American friendship cities. So. That uh, makes uh, a lot of sense. We are oil and gas produ production in Norway, and and we do also do a lot of med medical uh, things here. For sure. So thank you for that, and thank you for the introduction, Gordy. So I work uh, in the air ambulance service in Norway. Um, it's a bit different organized than in the US. We have a lot of uh, doctors and primarily anesthesiologists that will um, go out with a helicopter together with paramedics uh, to treat patients. And from 2015, we started implementing point-of-care ultrasound into this service. So because of the machines is getting smaller and smaller, it's portable, we found out, okay, if we could get skilled with this, we could bring it to the scene of the accident and actually utilize it. 
to diagnose and to quicker and better treat our patients. So I've gained a lot of experience in this field. Uh, my PhD is in, in lung ultrasound, so I'm especially interested in, in how we can diagnose a pneumothorax, for example, or a hemothorax, which is really, really useful if we can kind of hit the diagnosis directly and start treatment at the bedside. So I think that's the core of what this uh, tool can help us with. Uh, and I've been teaching alongside Gordy and, and uh, Victoria for years now. And as you can hear, we are quite passionate about this and we're looking forward to some fruitful discussions on, on the show. Thank you. So when we talk today, let's just assume that no one knows anything <laughs> so that my, myself and uh, my guests can catch up. And to start that out, um, <clears throat> would, would, someone, uh, would, would someone like to kind of explain the, pulse, the point of ultrasound and how it works in sort of simple terms? Yeah, I can, I can jump in here. So to make it very simply, it's an ultrasound that basically plugs into your cell phone. You know, it's, it's very portable. I mean, it doesn't have to be. There's also cart-based devices, which would be explained like an ultrasound that's like a laptop, I guess, is usually what you think. It's generally portable. Again, that's what makes it different. And um, then the real difference for me is this binary question, the targeted question you're trying to answer in the field. And I am the scanner as well as interpreting it. That's the big difference, uh, I think. Uh, do you guys have anything more to clarify about that? I, I think you're right, Gordy. So if you if you compare it to what happens in a hospital, the doctor might order an x-ray. It can take 30 minutes, 60 minutes to take the picture. Then you get an answer back. That's not point of care. So so I think the, the crucial thing is that it's the clinician, him or herself, that is doing the diagnostics using this portable tool that makes it powerful because it can guide the treatment there and then. I think I can just add, uh, I think, Bram, what, what, what you might be referring to when you said explain things in simple terms. So if people don't know what Nilspeta said, what a pneumothorax is, there's a punctured lung, basically. And uh, you can't uh, say for sure if the lung is punctured just by looking at the patient and touching them uh, and listening to their chest. So with ultrasound, you can uh, see straight away if the lung is punctured or not. So that is a uh, binary question, is there a sign of a puncture lung, yes or no? And then you can use your ultrasound, it takes a few seconds, uh, and you can you can answer the question rather than having to wait until you've transferred the patient to a hospital, uh, bring the patient over to a CT bed or into the x-ray room, do the x-ray, wait for the reports, and then uh, being able to, to answer the question. So it makes a huge difference to the time uh, time spent to diagnosis. So let's assume everyone's at least paramedic level, because I think that our audience is mostly paramedic, uh, nurse, and physician level. And um, it's just that it's not a technology that we get to use in you know in the in the field. And so uh, help me out with this little with this little quiz. Like, um, can we can we all list together some of the things that can be diagnosed? Um, just you know right away. We talked about. The uh, the lungs uh, the lung trauma stuff, but what about like um, if we're gonna be looking at the heart? Can we check for fluid there, or is there? Tell me more. But can we help? Help me just list some stuff because this is exciting. Yeah, uh, can I jump in really quick? Because that's what I was thinking with your EMT. So cardiac again, we are not cardiologists, but you have a PEA arrest. You're gonna put the probe below the heart in what we call the subcostal area. Someone's doing CPR on the chest. 
you switch providers, you have about three second window to look at the heart. And with PEA, you know, the differential cardiac tamponade, I can see a bunch of fluid around the heart. Yeah. Hypovolemia, I see a hyperdynamic heart, a huge PE, I see the right heart is really enlarged. Okay. And then often an agonal rhythm for an electrolyte disturbance or when people frankly are, are dying. And I see this heart barely moving. It really narrows down that differential quickly and changes what you would do in the field. If someone has cardiac tamponade and they're really checking out, you're probably going to put a catheter in there and try to drain that. Right. So, you know, you can see the advantage there where otherwise you're giving fluids and epinephrine and transferring to the hospital. That's one example I would say of looking at the heart and particularly pertaining to EMTs. There's many more that we do. Can you guys, Victoria, can you jump in with another example? Like you say, we're not looking at any fine details. We're not uh, doing any fancy measurements or anything. Uh, when we do point of care ultrasound, we're looking for uh, growth and um, pathology. So like, like Gordon said here, if you're looking at the heart, it's not uh, any measurements or anything. You're just looking for, is there fluid? Yes or no. Is the heart pumping? Yes or no. And you said, Bram, what can we look at? We can look at pretty much everything from head to toe. Uh, in trauma, in addition to looking at the heart and the lungs, obviously you can look for bleeding or for free fluid in the abdomen. Uh, you can even look for fractures with ultrasound. Even if you kind of look through bone, you can look at the surface of bone and identify any fractures. Uh, so there is a very long list over things you can examine uh, without doing anything fancy. <laughs> well, you know, when you mentioned the uh, the ability that you have to look at the heart with something like this, I, I, um, I just am thinking about how um, through my years as a paramedic, both in the ER and in the field, I've been in hundreds of CPR situations. And the number of times when I've seen ultrasound pulled out you know, during that cardiac event is almost zero. It's not zero because I know some uh, trauma cases that I remember, you know, but like um, that is uh, just to share with you all, that is surprising to me from, um, from my perspective because uh, I don't see that uh, being used. What I do see is I see a lot of assumptions made, you know, like, oh, we're in PEA, that must mean this. And so I'm kind of in shock because I'm realizing here that D Dr. Johnson's saying, hey, we can confirm some of this stuff. We can and so I, I'm, I actually want to say that I don't know that it's um, used as, um, as often as it could, even when you have it available in the ER. It's interesting, Bram, when you talk about PEA, because um, ultrasound has actually kind of introduced uh, another concept that we call pseudo-PEA. So when you use ultrasound during cardiac arrest, we differentiate between a real standstilling heart where you still have electric, uh, electric activity, which we would call a real PEA. But with ultrasound, you would sometimes see that the heart muscle is moving, and we would call that pseudo-PEA. And actually, studies show that those patients has a higher chance of survival because the, you know, the, the muscle is really trying to survive. And we can actually see that, but we can't feel the pulse, but we can actually, with ultrasound, see that the heart is beating. Uh, so there are new information that we can get by introducing this. So in that case, uh, we would think, okay, now my patient has a heartbeat, but they just don't have a blood pressure. Is that kind of the, the idea that that would give me? I would say, okay, it's not just the electricity, the mechanical parts there. It's just not 
the perfusion isn't strong enough to feel blood pressure. Isn't that, is, that, would, isn't that what that would tell me? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, you will actually see the heart is beating, but you, it doesn't generate a pressure, as you said. You mm -hmm. can't feel the pulse, but the heart is still kind of active. Mm -hmm. There is uh, some movement in the muscle. They will have a higher chance to get a return of pulse compared to like a, a real standstilling heart. You might sometimes see that there is coagulated blood inside the heart, which is kind of signs that the patient might have been there for a long time mm -hmm. without cardiac activity and there is no use continuing. Mm -hmm. So it will be a helpful tool in those situations for sure. The other thing I think of in these arrest situations is, is pulse checks and how insensitive they are really. But you can put an ultrasound on the neck and look at the carotid and we have something called Doppler color flow we can look at. And we can see if there is actually a pulse in the vessels much more accurately than trying to feel with your fingers in a crash situation. And especially if the patient is obese, we know how poor that study is. So again, these simple binary questions and we could train somebody, you know, maybe not to do cardiac, but be able to identify a pulse or not. So I, and, and I agree with that. And, and again, just to answer the, the previous questions, what can we use this for? I, I like to, to view it as a, as a visual stethoscope because instead of listening, you're actually looking. Uh, and we talked about punctured lung and pneumothorax. It's a, a great tool for that. Also to look for fluid either around the lung, around the heart or, or free fluid in the abdomen. I would also like to add looking at the aorta. So be able to see if the aorta is dilated and, and those kind of conditions. And I was never able to diagnose before I got this tool. So just all these kind of things where, you, where your eyes is better than your ears would be uh, helpful. This is what we're always trying to do. We're always trying to, um, to diagnose our patients. But it makes me wonder, is the diagnosis always going to be worth it? Because, you know, when we're in EMS, there are different um, situations where you might be in a city where the hospital is 15 minutes away. So do we uh, want to, you know, go through that? But at the same time, we might be taking the patient to a hospital that we know is so busy, they're not going to see a doctor for the first hour, right? So I think this is, um, this is sort of situational. So it makes me think, you know, first, is it worth it from the perspective of, yeah, now I know what's going on with my patient for sure, but how, how much is that going to change the treatment? And so far in our conversation, I got that, well, I'm, I'm going to have a good idea if the cardiac arrest is viable or not, right? So I can know if we should continue or not. But how about as far as actual treatments to, um, that, that might be done um, to see if it's worth it, right? To, to see, like, that this is going to be an intervention that we make in the field. When it's better to jump in here quickly, but I would also say it helps triage. So um, he was mentioning the FAST exam. You might have heard of a focal sonography and trauma. And if the abdomen is full of fluid, you're worried about hemorrhage. So that's going to triage that person into that ER. Hopefully won't have that hour wait with a positive FAST exam. Um, and But the other thing I want to mention is in Norway, if I'm translating correctly, they call it clinical ultrasound. So... If I'm a 50-year-old cirrhotic, I may have fluid in my abdomen all the time. If I'm a 30-year-old female that's pregnant, I've got acute onset abdominal pain, that might be an ectopic pregnancy. And if I've got a little bit of fluid on my abdomen, that's an emergency. So you have to also put it into the clinical context when you're doing ultrasound. But 
Uh, can you two give us more examples of how it helps you triage patients? Yeah, I would I would use the 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 phrase four T's. So I would use ultrasound to try to alter treatment. That's the first T. Uh, obviously, you you want to do treatment A or treatment B. So that's that's where we could use it. Number two is you mentioned triage. I think that's an interesting concept. Normally, I would only have one patient, but if we go back to Italy in 2020, the pandemic. They would use ultrasound in the ER to triage whose patient is, is admit, admitted to the hospital and who's not. So there is all these kind of things you could use to kind of prioritize between your patients if there is a lot of patients at the same time. The, the third T is um, transport. So in Norway, we are a long country. There is, is not the best roads uh, and so on. So we would either go for car ambulance, we could go for uh, helicopter transport, we can even go for uh, fixed wing or flight transport. So we could kind of help use the ultrasound tool to help us with, you know, decide which kind of treatment is, or sorry, transport is best. And the last T would be team preparations. And that's important to me because my philosophy is that the more that I know about my patient as early as possible, I can prepare the team that is going to take over that patient. So that would, in my case, be the team that will take over the patient in the ER. Uh, and if I can give them a good, fully qualified report, I can prepare them to get the optimal uh, treatment of the patient and make sure that they don't wait for an hour if there's an emergency, which can be fatal in some cases. So there is these four T's that I always bring with me when I use this tool. Thank you for that. It makes me wonder how the progression of of this is going to hit EMS across the world because we have these technicians that a lot of people see as just that, just technicians, not people that diagnose, not, you know, basically just band-aid people to get someone to the doctor. And this make, this really adds uh, an incredible uh, diagnostic tool to this. And so it makes me wonder, you know, how is that going to be received? I remember one time I was transporting a patient that had a triple A to a thoracic surgeon and the patient um, was in a, a very um, serious spot because I remember starting out with a blood pressure just around 90 and I, in a, um, in about a 30 minute period, I went down to like 60. And so I had an argument with the thoracic surgeon because um, he wanted to scan her again before surgery. And I told him, like, we just don't have time. And I, you know, I had a full-on argument with him trying, you know, this was about 20 years ago. But I had a full-on argument with him because I know you don't talk that way to surgeons, but I also knew that this patient wasn't going to survive that, you know, that additional scan. And so um, I, you know, always, the, the patient did die, and the patient died in the scanner right after we had the big argument. But it's like, you know, it always makes me think about, you know, how much trust um, do the do the intervention people have in what information is being told to them? And in this case, you know, we had a scan from the outside hospital plus a falling blood pressure and um, it was, it was scary. So, you know, um, in these cases that need emergency surgical intervention, um, I wonder about the struggles that uh, paramedics are going to go through to um, talk surgeons into going, you know, going ahead with a knife before uh, spending more diagnostics in the hospital when it's needed. What, what do we, what do y'all think about that? 
Yeah, that's that's a big a good point. And um, fortunately, a lot of these struggles have been done before us, mainly with ER physicians. But like I said, I keep referring to this with the cardiologist saying, what are you guys doing with these probes? You're dangerous. You don't know what you're looking at. You're not getting good scans. Um, you know, radiologists worried we're in you know, some kind of turf battle. It clearly is not. So fortunately, those struggles, uh, I think, for the most part, are over. I'll tell you, though, one way to really make it hard on yourself is to overinterpret to get a cardiac scan. You really can't see very well, and you tell the cardiologist, oh, the EF is fine, or it's low, and it's not. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage your on your audience, don't be afraid to say non-diagnostic scan. I'm bringing a patient in. They've got abdominal trauma. We did a fast exam. Unfortunately, they're obese, and it was non-diagnostic. We couldn't get a good picture. Mm -hmm. That's something we really, really need to be careful. And it's dangerous for the patient because if you misinterpret that and tell a surgeon, no, that FAST was negative, like we said, okay, maybe they're put in the back of the ER mm -hmm. and waiting out when they have an internal bleed. So just being, and I, I struggle with this because I think particularly when we're training doctors, I'm like, why are we so uncomfortable saying we don't know? Mm -hmm. Well, we're not used to that, right? I'm a doctor. Of course I know. Um, you know, and it, it seems like an insult to myself. I didn't know what I was doing with that fast exam, but frankly, an expert, I don't know, Victoria, sometimes if you're looking at a, uh, a patient and they're just so obese that you just can't get good pictures, you know, in a setting, not in a rushing ambulance or something. I think that's really important, but other comments? No, I, I, I absolutely agree. You need to know your limits and you need to know, uh, when to say that you actually can't conclude with anything. But uh, Brian, if you think about that patient you had, you said you had a scan from another hospital and they wouldn't, you know, trust it or whatever. Yeah. They want to do another scan. Yeah. If you had had an ultrasound scanner in your pocket and that's how small they are, you can actually put it in your pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, and you knew what you were doing. You were trained to scan aortas. You would easily see an aneurysm easily. Mm -hmm. And you could save that on the scanner on your mobile phone and you could show it to the doctor take uh, taken over the patient in the emergency room it makes he me couldn't, he, he couldn't say no no i don't trust this i'm going to do a ct scan because you know yourself that's when the patients crash yeah. crash these ones with the big aneurysms well so. it, I, I'm, I'm like feeling emotional because I'm, I'm realizing that this is technology right this could have you know been in my pocket 20 years ago and maybe done that so how how victoria how long does it take to do to set up to stick that on the chat you know just squirt gel stick it on turn it on i mean how many how many minutes or seconds are we talking about well if you knew what you were doing and you were trained to do it uh, I would say in a patient, if you didn't have like a super, super obese patient, like an average patient, it would take you maybe between five and 10 seconds. Oh, so that's just awesome. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, for me to train you to do this, I don't know, have an hour, an hour. Well, maybe <laughs> I, I don't believe that. I think it'd take me a before you, <laughs> before you get comfortable trusting uh, what you see, but you know, we're not talking two years in order to learn these point of care protocols that a scan for an uh, abdominal aortic aneurysm would, would be. Just want to add, Bram, to that. Remember now you have video, a video clip or even a picture in your pocket that will help you in your arguments towards a surgeon or a cardiologist and so on. And I, I feel that I've done this a long time now, and, and I feel they actually like that we document things. Uh, they will look at the picture and 
even though if you don't have if, if they disagree with you well then you can have that discussion over your video or picture and uh, but it, it makes your arguments much stronger and and uh, that helps a lot i think you're just uh, adding more information to them and they like that this has just been totally awesome i feel like that ems is just growing by leaps and bounds especially with technology like this and so for to all three of you thank you so much for pushing the envelope forward and maybe in 20 years from now we'll be um, talking about um you know different kinds of interventions in the in the field but but right now you know from someone who's um seeing the world without this and can understand the world with this. I, I thank you. So um, does it, you all have, does anyone have anything else to, uh, to finish? Yeah. I mean, I would just um, say, you know, I'd encourage people to start with doing an ultrasound guided IV. I think that's a great place to start and very practical for EMTs. And, and they're just going to be different levels. And some people say, I'm going to stop there, maybe bladders and, and IVs. And then there's going to be the other person who's very interested in doing fast exams and cardiac and things like that. And then I always say it's like skiing. You're not going to learn by sitting and listening to someone like me. you got to get that probe in your hand and you have to scan a lot of people. And Victoria, you can teach, teach them to look at a normal aorta in a half an hour, but they need to see a lot of abnormals and normals and then really get to know, you know, again, the difference. And again, if they're 500 pounds, you know, that, I always say that's the patient that I need help with, but I have to say with ultrasound, that's the one where it's very, very difficult. It's still helpful in many of those, but oftentimes you have to throw your hands up and you do have to get that formal CT or whatever. It's just the way it is. And Gordon, I can just add, and this is a whole other topic that I'm not going to go into, but the problem is often getting the training and having qualified teachers there to train you and to mentor you and to discuss your scans with you that's that's often uh, something that puts a halt to to learning something like this but uh, as you gordon with one of your articles you can also see how how now you have available to you simulators and also remote teaching that makes this uh much easier if if you want to learn there's uh you, you definitely find a way to learn i always say you just need one patient meaning this first patient where you're able to diagnose something that you know from before that you were never able to do just such a good feeling and 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 then just encouraged to to learn even more so it's it's a lear it's a learning curve but it's it's not too steep you could learn this uh but uh, as with everything in ems you need to practice practice and use it in your everyday clinical life and what seems so great is that this can be used to, for so many different diagnoses. And so from all the way from Portland, Oregon, to Norway, now to Houston, thank you all for being with me. This has been a, a great talk. And I don't know about everyone else that's listened, but I'm really excited about ultrasound and what it means for the future of, of EMS. I want to also invite you to check out my latest book I co-authored with Four Arrows, who has two doctorates and is an expert on indigenous scholarship and hypnosis. 
So I just want to invite you to check it out because we introduce a method for communicating with patients on the scene of an emergency that takes advantage of some of the properties found in hypnosis. This book works to change the way we approach and interact with any kind of emergency patient in acute distress because it's going to help you be a better practitioner and use communication as a healing tool. Right now, there's just not a lot of training in how to talk to your patient. And if you've been stuck with a patient for any period of time and, and you need to have a conversation, it's awesome to be able to have have a healing conversation. This book is called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can follow the link below to find it, or you can find it literally almost anywhere you type in the name or my name. I had a friend that mailed me a book and wanted an autograph. Don't mail me a bunch of books. Just let me know that you want an autograph for the book, and I'll be happy to send you over a sticker. I have some stickers made that are pretty awesome that I'll send you that you could put in the cover. Hi. I'm Will Chaplow from the International Pre-Hospital Medicine Institute. You might know about us because of the literature reviews that we post every month free to, for your review on our website at iphmi.com and also published through Gems Online Magazine every month. We've been doing them for five years, so now we've accumulated over 240 literature reviews over the past five years. And we've gotten feedback from our audience that said they'd like to have these things as desk references, so they'd had a rapid reference. Well, we've done it. And there are now five volumes of these books, one for each year that we've been publishing them. Uh, this is the latest version, uh, volume five. And as I said, in each of these, there's at least 48 literature reviews. They're all cataloged in the beginning of the book, so you can see um, what the topic area is, what pages those reviews are on, and how you can find them quickly. And again, these are a great reference, whether you're putting a lecture together, uh, working on a paper, uh, studying, whatever it is. This gives you the depth of field of the science that dictates what we do in the field or what we should be doing in the field or why we've changed the way we do things in the field. In any event, as with all of our publications, we've priced these because we want you to be able to have this book. It's only $4.99 in the written, in the copy, the hard copy here, and they're all five of them are available at that price, but you can also get them as eBooks, and they're available as eBooks from Amazon, from uh, Apple, from Barnes & Noble, wherever you get, you get your eBooks for the price of $2.99. So again, we don't do this um, with an aim towards getting wealthy. We do these because we want you guys to be able to have these materials. Relevant information, affordable information, and an access so you can get to it. So you want the hard copies? Go on Amazon, $4.99. Go to your ebook store and you get it for $2.99. If you're in the business, this is the kind of material you want to have around to settle those firehouse arguments or to help you put your materials together. Thanks again. See you all soon. Thanks. The other thing before we close that I want to share is that I'm doing a research project related to first responders who live in the United States. And I could really use your help if you don't mind being interviewed over a video call. So go to my website, fill out the form that's at professorbram.com, professorbram.com. And thank you again for listening. I look forward to sharing more insights with you in this next episode. If you enjoy EMS research, please tell your friends, like, share, and subscribe to help others get the message. And then stay tuned for the credits at the end so you can see the research articles that we talked about in today's episode.